All right. Well, this is session seven, and like I said, uh, I started to say at the very beginning, uh, we're going to be talking about the, the, I'm calling this the fundamental guide for conflict resolution. Uh, not that this little guide has everything in it, uh, but it's, uh, I feel like it's a good backbone, it's a good um, uh, help to allow us to strive uh, in our families, in the marriage relationship in particular, but then also with our children and our families, um, and just with one another in general, uh, to be peacemakers, to strive uh, for reconciliation when there is conflict uh, in, in relationships that we have, um, and to, to glorify God in all of that. Um, in, my, in this whole study, uh, there was just, again, this is, this is one that is going to take two weeks, uh, because there was just so much, and I started cutting things out, and I just felt like, but I, this is so good, and I just wanted to leave it in there, so I just decided we're just going to do a two-weeker on this. I think it's going to be beneficial for all of us, and that way I'm not trying to rush through this whole thing. Um, but, uh, but basically, like I said, this is the fundamental guide for conflict resolution, uh, and this is coming back down to us striving uh, to, uh, to, to lead our families, to live in our families uh, in a way that glorifies and honors the Lord. Um, and in order to do that, we must uh, be quick uh, to resolve conflict when it arises in our families. Um, let me tell you about a couple. This book, so you guys may have read this. I think, I think I'm late to the game on this. I've heard about this book for years. It's been on my shelf for years. I never picked it up until this week, and I wish I had picked it up earlier because I only got halfway through. This is an excellent book. It's called uh, The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Um, and like I said, I have not finished it, but the more I read it, I was like, I just need to read this uh, for this lesson. There's just a lot of great um, uh, wisdom and application uh, of biblical principles in here. Um, so anyway, I, I would just suggest this to you. And like I said, I've got a few quotes in here, but it was just a really good one. And another one that I really liked was conflict. It's called Communication Conflict Resolution by Stuart Scott. This is just a chapter out of The Exemplary Husband. Uh, but it's, this is very short and simple. Uh, and I feel like it's a, a really good resource. Uh, and I have a few copies in the back that you're welcome to pick up. Anything, those two, uh, there's one. Uh, one is a 31-day devotional on uh, basically conflict resolution, and then these, those are free for you to take if you like them. Uh, and then also have the, the notes from the past for anyone that missed past classes back there. But these, like I said, were two of my favorites as I was reading through different things this week. Um, but all of that being said, let me get to the notes. Here we go. So the fundamental God for conflict resolution. We must have godly communication in order to resolve conflict and have relational intimacy in the home. So everything that we talked about two weeks ago when it comes to uh, speaking uh, in ways that are edifying, uplifting, building up, encouraging, letting no unwholesome word come out of our mouth, all of the things we talked about when we talked about uh, godly communication, uh, that has to be in place in order to be able to resolve conflict well. Disunity in the home can stem from personal differences, uh, personal preferences, offenses, uh, or physical or verbal conflict. Relational conflict is not condoned by God. However, relational conflict is purposed by God to produce, for the believer, humility, selflessness, submission, unity, love, and ultimately Christ-likeness. It is, the foundational, uh, it is foundational for the believer to become an expert in conflict resolution. And that's what we're going to see in the notes. Like, today we're going to get kind of behind, theologically, uh, you know, the, the big picture. Uh, why does God allow conflict? Why, why, what would be the purpose uh, for good in the home when there is conflict, whether it's 
your own, you know, you're, you're bringing your own personal uh, preferences or sins to the table or it's happening within the home. Um, and, uh, and then where does that conflict come from? And like we said here, all conflict is some, at some level is going to stem from sinfulness. You know, there's sin in this world. We're sinners. Uh, there's going to be things outside the home that press in on the family dynamic. There's going to be things that are internal in our hearts and our minds that we're going to bring to the table to our family that's going to cause conflict. And like I said, sometimes it's just personal differences, and then sometimes that is just straight sin. Whatever it is, uh, the Lord in his sovereignty and his goodness orchestrates all things so that we become more like Christ. We know that from Romans 8. So even conflict in the home is still purposed for our good. It doesn't mean that it's good to bring about the conflict. It means that in the midst of it, it is good to submit to the Lord and to walk through it rather than, you know, because a lot of times what we want to do is just push it to the side, bury it, something like that. And we're going to say when conflict arises, our job as Christians is to plow through that conflict in submission to the Lord and obedience to his word is striving to glorify him and to love one another in all that we do. And in that way, the conflict itself will produce the fruit of righteousness, which will cause the, the, the family to grow tighter together. So all that being said, that's kind of the big picture. I threw in James 3, 1 through 12 here, because like I said, I knew Caleb was going to preach on that last week. And uh, James 3, 1 through 12 uh, proves that our words are, the blank there is powerful and dangerous. So kind of coming out of godly communication uh, and going into conflict resolution, James 3 is a good reminder that our tongues can doom us, our tongues can direct us, our tongues can destroy us, our tongues can defile us, and our tongues can deceive us. And all those things come from James 3. Um, and, and there's some very, very uh, important words there that remind us that, that we got to be careful not to add or take away from his word. Uh, I, I have these little uh, notes here. I taught through this um, uh, one year here at the school, and we, we just hammered down on the tongue because, again, when you're speaking to middle schoolers, they're, they're, you know, they're starting to speak with adult language, but they have childish way of thinking. Their tongues are just, ra- I mean, they just, they just say things that just destroy uh, so easily. Um, and, uh, and so I remember talking to them about this and talking about the bits and ships, you know, the, 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 the bit in the horse's mouth and the little rudder on the ship. These little, your little words uh, can, can cause massive, massive uh, change of course in your life, you know. And again, we see that all the time. Uh, today, you know, people bring up something that someone posted when they were 14 on Facebook and now they're 35 and they're playing professional sports and that ruins their entire career because of something they posted 20 years prior that someone brings back up. But again, it just shows you, your words can cause uh, great destruction and, and, and change the course of your entire life. Um, and again, he talks about matches and fire. He talks about our words being poisonous, harmful, and filthy. And he talks about how our words can, um, we can even deceive ourselves, you know, and uh, how a tree and a vine, a fountain are known by what it produces. Um, and we as Christians should not be uh, producing uh, fruit that is not of the Lord. So uh, our words are very powerful and dangerous. And our words very often are the things that cause conflict in the home. The words come from the heart, which is who, what we are, what we're made out of. But we have to be very careful how we open our mouth, you know, and when we open our mouth and what comes out of our lips. Knowing that we can be self-deceived and knowing that we have remaining sin within us, we need heavenly discernment and wisdom to know how to navigate relational conflict when it arises from our own sinfulness. Wisdom from above allows us to dissect our own hearts, 
so that we can see the source of conflict with biblical clarity. We need the surgical scalpel of Scripture. And that's what I believe James 3, 13 through 4, 3, which is kind of, like I said, the foundation of the conflict resolution, uh, this whole lesson. Uh, A lot of these principles are going to stem out of James 3 and 4, and then I'm going to bring in other other scripture to, to, to show these are principles that are throughout scripture. But in James 3, 13 through 4, 3, uh, we get uh, the identifying cause of relational conflict, no matter what it is, whether it's in the home or whether it's in the workplace or just amongst friends or in the church. Um, and I call this the wisdom of heaven and hell. That's your blank. The wisdom of heaven and hell. And the reason we call it that is because you kind of see him dissect the wisdom that is from God and then the wisdom that is from the earth or what is natural or what is demonic. And he puts those side by side so that we can identify because, again, what happens with our words, what happens uh, in our lives is we are the first to fool ourselves. But if you get behind that and you see, look, this is from God and this is never from God, then it allows you to immediately begin to get behind the argument, behind the preferences, behind what is happening right in front of you and go, is even what we're talking about from the Lord? Am I coming from a place that's founded on, on, on biblical principles and fruit of the Spirit? Or is the way that I'm speaking, the way that I'm thinking, more like Satan? And I think this is a good uh, place to start. So James 3 and James 4 are very good to memorize, to know, to understand. It says in James three thirteen through 18, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good conduct his works in the gentleness of wisdom. But, look at this, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. So, if you're beginning at a place of envy, jealousness, uh, selfishness, pride, these kind of things, this selfish ambition, then don't fool yourself into thinking that whatever is going to come from that place is going to glorify God. You're beginning on, on, on the wrong foundation. This wisdom, he says, is not coming down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. This is the way the world system works. This is the way the natural, sinful man works. This is the heart and the the characteristic of Satan. So these things are never going to be of God. If you begin the conversation out of selfish motives, from your pride, uh, from a place of envy or jealousy or self-pity, you are beginning... Uh, on, a, on a sinful foundation, and it's not going to produce the fruit of righteousness. Does that make sense? He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, th- there is disorder and every evil practice. So if that's where you begin, then you are heading into conflict. You're heading into chaos, into disorder, into evil. So again, you can't start in a place of selfishness, self-pity, pride, uh, and, and jealousy, envy, and think that you're going to plow through this and glorify God. You're beginning on the wrong foundation. But, he says, on the other side, the wisdom of heaven, if you want to call it that, the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That is the foundation for conflict resolution. We have to start at a place 
that is driven by wisdom that comes down from above, that, is, that, that comes from a pure heart, that is aimed at peace, that is submissive, merciful, full of the fruit of the Spirit, and is aimed at making peace. That's conflict resolution. Does that make sense? So this kind of, like I said, gets back down behind it, and you can say, before you open your mouth, where am I coming from here? Do I feel like my rights have been tread upon? Do I feel like I deserve something? Is there something here that I feel like I'm not receiving that I'm demanding um, and I'm going to now open my mouth and try to get what I want? Or is it, am I coming from a place where I know I don't deserve anything? I know that anything good that I have comes from God and I am just a submissive servant here and I just want to strive to make peace in this situation and for both of us to glorify God in whatever decision we make. And so when you get back behind it and you start going, okay, this is wisdom from hell, which is foolishness, and this is wisdom from heaven, which is like Christ, then at least you can, you can kind of dissect where you're coming from and why you are so uh, upset or offended or whatever it is that's causing the conflict in the home. So James 3, 13 through 18, uh, is, is good at dissecting the heart. He goes on, the next verse, James 4, 1 through 3, to say, So what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Speaking to Christians, he says this, Is not the source your pleasures, what you desire, what you want, what's going to fulfill you, that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not ask, uh, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So again, he just gets right down to the heart of it. What is the source of quarrels? You want to know why there's fighting, conflict, and quarrels in your home? It's because you want something and you're willing to sin to get it. Or you're afraid of something and you're willing to sin to avoid it. That's it. It's that simple. And rather than asking the Lord, rather than submitting to Him, rather than, than waiting on Him, you're going you're to take this in your own hands and you're going to make sure it works out to what you think the best end would be. And He's saying that's going to be the, the source of your quarrels and conflicts. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. So hopefully the rest of this will tell you all about that. So uh, we're going to start with like the big, this is big picture. And then we're going to talk about like, so what's the Lord doing in this? What's Christ like? You know, what's going to glorify him? What's the source of this in us? And then we're going to talk about just practical. I mean, do, you know, this, these are steps of, 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 of practice. Does that make sense? So like I said, Two weeks, because there's a lot here, but we're, we're going to get right to that, Zelda. Good question. <laughs> All right, so Matthew 15, 19, and I just want to throw this in here too. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, and slanders. It's just, this is the Lord reminding you that, that the, the source of the conflict is coming from you. <laughs> it's coming from within. And this is something that I learned early on. Someone taught me, and it just helps me every time. I feel offended by someone, I've been hurt by someone, I'm the victim in some situation, whatever it is, it's always a reminder that if you have a problem with someone else, then you have a problem with God. 
If you have a problem with someone else, then there's something in you that you need to dissect and you know, figure out what, what is going on there. If you've been offended, hurt, whatever it is, you need to dissect your own heart first this, and pull the log out of your eye before you go to your brother, all that. But it's just a reminder that out of the heart come these things. You know, when we want to slander someone, we're upset at someone, we have these evil thoughts about someone else, that's you. It's not them. And, and the big picture is the Lord allowed the offense for a reason so that you could see where your pride and your selfishness still exist and there's still idols in your heart. Does that make sense? So I think that's one of the greatest things about conflict. The greatest things about turmoil is it's for the Christian, it's always purpose for your good. It's always purpose for you to see these things that have got to go that don't glorify him. And, and that's, a, like I said, Matthew 15 is a reminder that it is out of our hearts that these things arise. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be someone that just sins against you and it was unjust and it was unprovoked and all of that. But even that is purposed by the Lord for your good. And you have to remember the big picture. Um, so, and then, like I said, as a, as a professing Christian who wants to worship God, we're going to see that in Matthew 5. You can't worship God when you're angry at your brother, when there is unresolved conflict that you actually could do something about. Um, so all that being said, we'll get to that in a second. Um, this quote at the bottom by Stuart Scott in the Communication and Conflict Resolution, it says, We know that sin begins in the mind or the heart. Our proud and fleshly thoughts can be likened to the seeds of conflict. We must do away with these sinful seeds before they spring up and cause conflict. And we must replace proud or fleshly thinking if we hope to avoid conflict. So always remember to start with your own heart and your own mind. That is the first place to start. And go to James 3 and 4 to, to dig those things out. Are there things here that are earthly, natural, demonic? Is there selfishness, pride, ambition, jealousy, envy in my mind that causes me uh, to, to, to be thinking things that are not going to be glorifying to him? All right, number one, the presuppositions for conflict. Presuppositions for conflict. Here's some things to remember about conflict. And like I said, I keep talking, so I'm getting ahead of myself on some of these things. But these are good reminders when conflict does arise uh, to, to remember. And letter A is relational conflict is inevitable. Relational conflict is inevitable. Inevitable. <laughs> not inedible. Uh, <laughs> men and women are not only different in many ways, they are also sinners. So you got to think about that. Like uh, Shane just talked about how the Lord has made men and women different. They're meant to complement one another. They're meant uh, to, to think different and to be different than one another. And that's part of the, the union and the oneness of marriage. Uh, but they're also both sinners. So the fact that we're different and the fact that we're sinners is just, just no, conflict is going to happen. doesn't mean that it has to be fistfights and arguments all the time. But if you think that there's going to be no conflict, then, then you're just being naive and you're not preparing your mind for what you need to walk through. We are meant to complement one another and complete one another. However, there will be times when conflict, uh, when we conflict with one another. Um, and actually, a good thing to, um, you know, to study the one another's in the Bible, go look through the Bible and just look at all the... Actually, I had a list. I was going to print it out and I forgot. But um, I had a list of like 50 one another's. And if you look at it, these are just... This is, this is what we're called to do. And all of the... Whether it's bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, um, whatever the, the one another command is, all of them, if you really think about it, take some amount of sinfulness or, or conflict 
to be able to practice, right? To be patient with one another requires a situation where you're being provoked to anger. Things aren't turning out the way you want them to be. You're having to trust the Lord and you can't do anything about it, which causes you to be patient. So does that make sense? So to be patient requires the presence of sin to be practiced. To love one another requires the presence of sin to be practiced in the way that Christ tells us. He says, uh, lay down your life for one another. That means you have to deny yourself. You have to not do the thing that you want to do. He even tells us to love our enemies. So you have someone that's purposely being hostile toward you, and our call is to love. So, so whether it's for, uh, forgiving, I mean, the only time you have to forgive is when you're being sinned against, right? Uh, to bear with one another, yeah, that requires sin, to bear with someone. So again, all of the one another's require sin to be practiced, and they require um, a denial of self, a trust of the Lord, and a love for others in order to, to be displayed and, and played out. So study the one another's. All of those things are, are wonderful um, I guess, pieces of conflict resolution. Um, A lack of conflict, back to the notes, is not proof of unity, harmony, and oneness. Actually, I was reading in one of these books that I was reading uh, a story of uh, a married couple that was saying they had never had an argument in 50 years. The way they did that was every time the wife was upset, the husband just didn't talk back. He 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 just clammed up and said nothing. And so they never argued. But that's not, that doesn't glorify the Lord. That doesn't build intimacy and, and, and closeness. You can say, I haven't argued, but you also haven't loved one another the way that Christ has called us to love one another. So just the, the fact that there's no conflict doesn't mean that there's actual unity, actual harmony, actual oneness. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get to near the end. We're going to talk about some of the things not to do, the things to avoid. Uh, and so, you know, you can, you can, you can keep you know, peace in the family by just giving the other person what they want every time. But that's not conflict resolution. You can keep peace by ignoring things or acting like they didn't happen. That's not, not conflict resolution. You can keep peace by just fleeing the situation so you don't have to deal with it. But that's not conflict resolution. And those things never glorify the Lord. In fact, they're the opposite of what we're talking about. So the fact that there's no fighting, there's no argument, doesn't mean you have unity Conflict resolution is aiming towards true uh, unity and relational intimacy. True relational intimacy is forged through the fires of conflict as each person mortifies their own desires, submits themselves to the will of God, and fights for unity and peace through selfless, sacrificial, submissive love. If you want true peace and true unity, it takes hard work. And it's going to take pressing through those things that you feel like you need or you deserve or you desire and laying aside the things that we feel like we deserve and and submitting to the other person, loving the other person, laying down uh, your life and denying yourself. Letter B, many conflicts can be prevented. So conflicts are inevitable, but there are many conflicts that can be prevented simply by loving the other person, submitting to the Lord, Proverbs 15, 18 says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms the dispute. So again, you can, you can uh, avoid a lot of conflict or prevent conflict by being patient and calm and trusting the Lord, not opening your mouth too soon, not being hot-tempered. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 gives us a, a description of what godly love looks like. And all of these things, if practiced, will prevent a whole lot of conflict in our relationships. 
If you are patient, kind, not jealous, if you're not proud or bragging, if you're not puffed up, if you don't act unbecoming, you're being kind, you don't seek your own, um, it, uh, love is not provoked, it doesn't take into account wrong suffered. I mean, if you practice these things, it's gonna, you're, you're going to avoid a lot of conflict. I think we talked about that with communication. If, if you just won't fight, it's hard to argue with someone that won't, that won't argue back. It's hard to fight with someone that just won't fight back. And so if you walk into it going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make peace with this person no matter what the cost, no matter what it costs me, now I'm going to glorify the Lord in this, well, then you're going to avoid a lot of conflict. Uh, but if you go in there going, you know what? They've sinned against me, and I'm going to tell them they sinned against me, and I'm going to show them in the Bible, and I'm going to make them repent. Well, then you're going to stir up a whole lot of conflict along the way in your righteous uh, desire to, uh, uh, to do things biblically. So, uh, but again... If you're practicing love, you can prevent a lot of conflict. I have here, love does not provoke, and it is not provoked. So again, conflict happens when we are provoking someone or we're being provoked by someone. Uh, But love is on both sides of that. Love doesn't stir up, and love isn't easily stirred up. So aim at love. Letter C, pursuing peace with one another is not optional. The blank is optional. We have to remember this as Christians. Again, I love this Peacemaker book. Uh, but, but we have to understand that pursuing peace is not an option for us. It's a demand. It's a command. We must pursue peace. Romans twelve eighteen he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There will be people in your life that you cannot reconcile with because they are unwilling to reconcile. There are going to be people in your life that, that, um, uh, that you will not have peace with because they are unwilling to be at peace with you. But you, as a professing Christian and believer of Jesus Christ, cannot be the cause of the turmoil. Does that make sense? You must, it, like it says, as far as it depends on you and all that you have in your power to do, be at peace with all men. There's going to be people that hate you for the rest of your life. Some people are going to hate you because you're a Christian. But you cannot hate them in return. They're going to revile you, mock you, insult you, make fun of you, and ridicule you. But you can't return evil for evil. And you don't pray imprecatory prayers on them. You be at peace with all people. You be willing to lay down your life for your enemies. You love them to the very end, remembering that Jesus Christ loved you while you were despised and despicable and full of evil and a hater of him. And let him deal with vengeance and judgment and all of that. Our job is to be at peace. Does that make sense? So we, it's not an option. We must be peacemakers. Romans 14, 19, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's how Christians relate to one another. Whether it's you and me in this classroom, someone else in this church, or in the home, we pursue peace. We strive to preserve unity, um, and we are peacemakers. And then James 3.18, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So again, that's what we are. If you're a Christian, you're a peacemaker. That's, that's your role. Your job is to, to, to make peace with others. Like I said... If the other person refuses to be at peace with you, 
If the other person uh, uh, stands in their own stubbornness or obstinance, either as a professing Christian against the Lord's commands or just as someone in the world that just hates you, that's just part of life. But you have no right uh, at all, ever, to be the person offended and holding a grudge or praying, you know, vengeance upon them or even doing things, uh, whether it's overtly saying things about them or slandering them or whether it's just in your mind and you're just, you know, stirring or, or stewing in, in bitterness and, and hatred. Uh, peace, uh, a lack of peace is, is uh, not an option for us. All right, letter D. The, 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 the fourth and final presupposition for conflict is that conflict, conflict can be beneficial. We've kind of talked about this already. We're going to talk more about this soon. But we have to remember, conflict can be beneficial. Uh, it can encourage us to search Scripture. It can help us consider our own beliefs. Again, think about someone that challenges you and, and, and comes up and, and ridicules something you believe or, or comes up with a very logical thing. That, you know, and you're like, wow, I never thought about that before. But conflict like that can cause you to open the word, to stir up, wait, what do I believe? What does God say about that? And force you to consider your own beliefs. It can help us work hard at improving our communication skills. Again, when there's conflict, you have to be very careful how you speak. You have to be very careful uh, with the tone you speak, what you say. You start going, you know, you, you start examining your thoughts and your words more carefully. Uh, it can be used by God to produce spiritual growth and endurance. We're going to talk a lot about that. It gives us opportunities to practice servanthood and to prefer others. Again, all the one and others. It gives us an opportunity to glorify God and exemplify Christ. Um, again, that whole list came from Stuart Scott's little booklet. So, Conflict is inevitable. It can, many things can be prevented. Peace, pursuing peace is not an option, and it can be beneficial for us. So number two, that leads us into God's purpose for conflict. God's purpose for conflict. Three things here, big picture, to always remember with every amount of conflict, whatever it is, whether it's you and your, your spouse, your children, uh, a fellow believer, or, or, or anyone uh, these are three things to always remember when it comes to conflict. Letter A is God allows conflict to reveal our character. God purposes conflict so that, so that we can see what he already knows about us. So he can reveal both the faith that he implants in us and the idols or hypocrisy that may remain uh, because of our own sinfulness. And I love 1 Corinthians because in 1 Corinthians, you have Paul talking to the church. There's divisions and factions in the church. And you have in the very beginning of the book saying, there should be no divisions. And then you have him in chapter 11 saying, and there must be divisions. And he explains that. And I'm going to try to explain that very quickly here because it helps you to see. You can apply these principles to the family, but this is about the church uh, is, a, is a big picture. He says, there should, uh, there, yeah, there should be no divisions. There must also be divisions. These verses are speaking directly about the church, but can be applied to the family. In Christ, we have biblical wisdom. We have the Spirit empowering us. We have born again enabling that the Lord has, has, has made us alive now to be able to submit to Him, follow Him, uh, glorify Him, to help us to be peacemaking reconcilers. And that's what we are. As Christians, we make peace and we reconcile relationships. It's not an option. It's what we do. However, the Lord uses conflict both internally and externally to reveal where our allegiance lies, to reveal where our idols still exist, to reveal where our selfishness and pride still remain, and 
to show us where our sanctification must proceed. So that's why conflict is good. He is helping you to see what he already knows, and he's helping you to become more like Christ because that's what he does. And he uses trials, testing, temptation, turmoil, things like that in our life to do that. The way we handle conflict reveals our character and our condition. All right, so remember that. It reveals who you are, and it reveals where you are in the process with Christ. We're all in the process of sanctification. Conflict will open your eyes to places that you just didn't see sometimes or to things that are habitual patterns that you have to mortify. So look at 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 11. Paul says, Now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's the Lord's will. That's what we're striving for as a church. If you read Ephesians 4, whatever you read, we're all striving for unity of the faith, the like-mindedness of Christ. We're growing in maturity and Christ-likeness. That's just what the church does. So there should be no divisions, no factions, no fighting, no dissension. We should be unified. But then in 1 Corinthians 11, he's addressing those who are being contentious and one of the things that's causing division in the church and he says, but if one is inclined to be contentious, so you got someone in the church that's like, you know what? I don't agree. I'm going to stand on my own rights. I'm going to dress the way I want to dress. I'm going to do the thing that I want to do, and I don't care if someone else is offended. Here's what he's saying. He said, if, if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. So you got people coming together, and you got people that are coming together as a church, and they're going, I believe it's this, and I'm going to stand on what I think, rather than going, you know, I'm going to be submissive, I'm going to love others. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. Look at this. For there must also be factions among you. Why? Why would God, if you want to say it this way, require factions or dissension Within the body, for this reason, so that those who are approved may become evident among us. He reveals the character and the nature of people who profess Christ with their lips, but by their lives they they live in a way that denies what they say with their lips. And so the Lord will orchestrate division, contention, factions in the church to kind of pull out of the weeds those who do not belong to him and, and usually remove them. Uh, I heard a pastor say one time, and I thought this was a, a really good way of saying it. He says, God takes dissentious men, and he uses them like a magnet, and he hovers them over the church, and they just kind of pull out all the dissentious and factious people, and then they usually stir up things, and then they remove themselves, or their church disciplined. But in doing so, they, the Lord ends up preserving the unity of the body of Christ, bringing out the love of the church and the harmony of the church by removing the factious people are the dissentious people. And a lot of times the people that, that do that think that they're doing the will of God in doing it, but the Lord in the whole process removes the, the divisive people. And that's what he's talking about here. There should be no factions amongst us. There should be no divisions amongst us. There's going to be a lot of, uh, of, of sin, and we're going to have to work through those situations where we hurt one another, offend one another, but we strive to be peacemaking reconcilers. Um, but there will be divisions purposefully so that the Lord will reveal who does belong to him and who does not belong to him. And that's something you have to remember. So God allows conflict to reveal our character, which, again, don't be looking at those people. Look at your own heart and go, 
what in you could be detrimental to your faith if you just keep practicing this thing and cut it off now. Letter B, God allows conflict to test our faith. He allows conflict to test our faith. That's what we just kind of talked about. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Um, and conflict can be a trial. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, in this situation, you have outside things that are bringing about conflict for the people of God in 1 Peter. You also have conflict in the home, 1 Peter 3. But he's saying, you've been grieved by these various trials purposefully so that the Lord can refine you. He's testing your faith, and the result of your faith will be and must be uh, praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ returns, we will return glorified together with him. When, we, when he returns, we will be seen for what we truly are. The faith that he's imparted to us and our faith will be uh, manifest uh, you know, uh, visibly. We will be glorified together with him. We will receive honor, glory, and praise together with him. He will receive all honor, uh, honor glory, and praise, but we will be made like him, and we will be together with him. And he's saying that now pull it back to this present time. All these tests of your faith and all this conflict and all these trials that you go through, every single one of those are things that the Lord is doing to, to refine your faith, to make you more like Christ, and to cause you to be like him. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says the same sort of thing. We boast in our afflictions. Why? Because we know that affliction brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. In other words, conflict, trials, persecution, um, these sort of things, these things will, will, will drive us towards Christ-like character, towards tested, proven faith, uh, and towards uh, uh, hope and, and perseverance. Letter C, God allows conflict to make us more like Christ. This is the end result of turmoil in our lives uh, and, and, and part of the purpose, God's purpose for conflict. It's always to make us more like Christ. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it all joy. My Look at that. The last three, okay, so First Peter 1 uh, we greatly rejoice when grieved by various trials. In Romans 5, we boast in our afflictions. And then in James 1, we consider it all joy when we encounter various trials. Again, Christians aren't just, we, we don't love suffering. It's not like we're like, you know what? I need more pain today. You know, I mean, we, but we rejoice in these things because we understand, we trust the Lord and we know it's for our good. We know that he's going to glorify himself. And we know that all of these things will make us more like Christ. That's where the joy comes from. So again, remind yourself of that. When conflict arises, this is purposed by God to make me more like Christ. And in that, I can trust him and I can rejoice. He says, uh, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its perfect work. Here is the perfect work of, of trials and testing in your life. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, Christ-likeness, sanctification. That's the whole point. So every conflict, whether it's in your marriage, in your family, from, from, within the church, or, or at, at, at the job, or with, with your neighbor, all those conflicts are caused to purpose you to examine your heart, submit to Christ, trust the Lord in all these things, practice Christ-like character in the one and others, 
And in all of that, you will be being changed by God into the image of Christ from glory to glory as you walk through tests and trials in life. And the Lord will use conflict to do that. Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. And 1 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So again, that's always what God is doing. So next time there's, you know, you're in your mind, you're thinking something bad about your spouse or something's happened between you and your child and trust has been broken and now there's turmoil in the family. You've got to step back and go, God knew this was going to happen. God knew all these things before you were made aware of it by whatever circumstance he allowed it to come out. And it's all purposed for you to become more like Christ as you entrust yourself to him, as you trust him and listen to his word and submit to it. And as you, as you commit to practice peacemaking, love, Christ-likeness, reconciliation, whatever it is that gets you to that place, he is causing all of this uh, for, for your good and for his glory. All right, number three, the source of conflict. And this is probably where we're in today on number three. The source of conflict. So seeing the big picture, you got James 3 and 4 helping you dissect the heart and find your foundation. You got... Uh, you know, seeing that the, the Lord uh, purposes conflict for your good, for his glory, even for your future glory. Then we look at it and we go, so what is the source then of the conflict? And we already saw that in James 4. The source of your quarrels and, and conflict is, is your, your, your lusts that aren't met and your desires, your envy, uh, selfishness, and pride. Um, but the big thing is that you've got to remember this, that we are the source of the conflict. It's us. Don't ever look at the other person and be like, if it weren't for them, I would have no conflict in my life. They're the problem. They're the source. You've got you to look at yourself and recognize that we are the source of the conflict. Conflict is caused by sinful people thinking, speaking, and doing sinful things, of which you and I are a part of that. We are sinful, and we're going to bring about conflict because of the remaining sin in our life. Conflict reveals areas in our life where pride and selfishness still remain. Conflict is purposed by the Lord to remove pride and selfishness by submission and obedience to Christ. That's one of the the simplest and most obvious purposes of conflict. It's opening your eyes to the pride that remains in your life, opening your eyes to the selfishness that remains in your life that he knows full well. And he has allowed this circumstance for you to now see what he already knew and for you to now submit to him and to become more like Christ. James 4, we've already read that. Sources of quarrels, it's your pleasures, it's your lusts, you're envious, you fight in your quarrel. Uh, Proverbs 20, verse 3 says, It is a glory for a man to cease quarreling. But I I just threw this in there because that was funny. But any ignorant fool will break out in a dispute. Next time you want to fight, next time you're offended, next time you're the victim, next time you feel like you deserve something, just remember, any ignorant fool will break out in a dispute. (laughs) And that's what you're being when you're doing that. Uh, And then Psalm 139. I think this is a prayer that we should all pray every day. And Psalm 139 is the end of one of of my favorite psalms. Uh, Just David talking about the Lord, you know, making him the womb, ordaining all of his days, knowing his thoughts from afar. He knows everything about us. But at the very end, David prays 
for the Lord to bring about testing or trials or conflict, whatever it may be, so that David can know what the Lord knows and so that the Lord will lead David in his path. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. And again, this is after he's already said that the Lord knows his heart fully well, knows everything about his heart from beginning to end and and the thoughts, the intentions, everything. So he's saying, search my heart. Uh, But the reason that God's searching it is to reveal it to David. And then he says, try me. I mean, think about that's a that's a a scary and wonderful prayer. You're saying, Lord, test me. Lord, try me. Lord, put me in that place where the things that you know, but I still have not seen come out and are manifest so that I can see what you see. That's that's scary, right? Because you're already afraid of the things that you know that nobody else knows. But then you say, try me, Lord, and test me and allow me to see these things that you know about me. That's a, that's a powerful prayer. He says, and know my anxious thoughts. So he's praying for the Lord to test him and to put him in a place where he's afraid, anxious, and, and doesn't trust the Lord. And he says, and see if there's any hurtful way in me, anything sinful, anything that's, that's going to be harmful both to him or to, uh, to grieve the, 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 the Lord or the Spirit. And then he says, and lead me in the everlasting way. And I love that last part. Because a lot of times we say, try me, test me, and then I'll follow you. But David understands he has no ability or power to do that. He says, try me, test me, show my anxious thoughts, show me the things in me that don't please you, and then lead me in your way. David understands he's fully dependent upon the Lord for any amount of good, glory, sanctification, whatever it is, fill in the blank. And again, we have to remember that. But that's a good prayer to pray in your marriage and in your family, Lord, put me in a place of testing. Try me, expose my anxious thoughts, show me the places where I don't trust you, and Lord, lead me in your way. You lead me and help me to be a man after your own heart. Um, so anyway, like I said, that's just a, a great prayer. Letter A, uh, the, the, the first source of conflict is our pride, or you could call it self-glorification. Pride, which is self-glorification. We think we deserve something. We deserve honor. We deserve to be respected. We deserve to be obeyed. Uh, we deserve uh, whatever it is, you know, some, some, some right that we have said that we, we deserve. Uh, and we are going to demand that we be glorified in that thing when it's only Christ that deserves glory. Uh, in Proverbs thirteen ten, uh, pride is always going to lead to quarrels. It's always going to lead to conflict. With arrogance comes only quarreling, but with those who receive counsel is wisdom. So again, rather than standing on your own understanding, uh, receiving counsel and striving uh, to, to be submissive to the Lord. Proverbs 28, 25, and 26, an arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in Yahweh will be enriched. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool but he who walks wisely will escape. Again, that's the anti-Disney verse right there. You don't, don't trust your heart. Don't follow your own heart. That's, that's, that's the pathway of fools. It's the way of the earth. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's evil. But we walk wisely and we trust in the Lord. Proverbs sixteen eighteen: pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So if you want to guarantee more conflict in your life, then stand firm on your own pride and self-glorification, and you are welcoming to be a tool and an instrument of, uh, used by Satan to stir up conflict, and you are inviting uh, more conflict into your family, into your life. Letter B, the other source of conflict is selfishness. 
or self-gratification. Pride is self-glorification. You want honor. You want praise. You want to be glorified and put on uh, display. And selfishness is self-gratification. You're looking out for your own interests, to meet your own desires, to meet your own pleasures, to, to feed your own lusts. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 talks about the deeds of the flesh. He says, the deeds of the flesh are evident, and they are, or which are, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. Now look at this. All the bold highlighted, or bold and underlined words, all of these things have to do with conflict. And this is always uh, evidence that you are living uh, fleshly or, or walking the deeds of the flesh. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envying. All of those things are all demonic. They're all earthly, natural, demonic. They're never of the Lord. If you're ever thinking, speaking, acting from that foundation, it's always deeds of the flesh. And look at what he, just keep reading. Drunkenness crowds in things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have warned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That ought to be terrifying. Because we're in that list every day. You know your thoughts. You know your words. And you look at that and you're like, I cannot and must not and will not practice those things. Uh, But self-gratification, selfishness, is at the heart of all those things. And those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul's talking to Timothy. He's encouraging him as 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 a young church leader but the, the principles apply to all of us. He says, flee from youthful lusts, the things that you desired when you were young, the things that, that you uh, tried to satisfy yourself with. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Look at this. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome. If you call yourself a Christian, if you are a slave of Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, you cannot be quarrelsome because his, Christ was not quarrelsome, right? He, he was reviled, didn't revile in return. He, was, he suffered. He never threatened. Uh, uh, you know, he, he didn't cry out. He didn't call out in the street. He went to the cross silently. He wasn't a fighter. Uh, and, and, and we, we cannot be quarrelsome. He says, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Again, we're talking about conflict. All these things have to do with conflict within the church. And here's how you face conflict within the church. You, you're kind. They want to fight, you be kind. Uh, 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 they, they wrong you, you be patient. Um, and even if you have to correct someone, then you do that with gentleness. He says, if perhaps God may give them repentance. So again, you got someone being contentious, you got someone that wants to fight, and your hope is that that they that the Lord will do something in their heart and draw them to himself. Your hope isn't to get them kicked out of the church. Your hope isn't to for them to for the Lord to rain down vengeance upon them. Your hope is for their soul and for their good, for their salvation or for their sanctification. And that's what's going to drive you to be patient and to be loving, to bear up with them. Be patient. Strive for peace. There's a soul at stake. There's eternal judgment or eternal life at stake. And again, if you remember that, it causes you to first focus on yourself and go, I don't deserve what I've received, the grace of God. And then it causes you to be patient with others as the Lord is patient with you. Um, that, they, yeah, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. 
Um, this next quote is, again, from Stuart Scott. Conflicts happen, but w- uh, when we must have something, our desires may even be good desires and in, in and of themselves, but when they become demands, they are sinful. When our goal becomes fulfilling our fleshly desires, we will have conflict. A man and a woman uh, who is engaged in conflict is focused on self and not loving his or her spouse and glorifying God. In Ken Sandy, in this Peacemaker book, he says, Conflict always begins with some sort of desire. Uh, Unmet desires have the potential of working themselves deeper and deeper into our hearts. The desire becomes something we need or deserve. And uh, when uh, what we deserve becomes a demand, because now it's this is my right, this is what I deserve, so I demand it. And then idolatrous demands lead us to judge others when they fail to satisfy our expectations. Idols demand sacrifice. And when someone fails to satisfy our demand and expectation, our, uh, our idol, uh, O.L., demands that he should suffer we will find ways to hurt or punish people so that they will give in to our desires. And then he has this whole progression of an idol. I got this out of the Peacemaker book. And basically, again, it starts with the lust of our hearts, James 3, uh, James 4, uh, what we just read. Um, uh, it starts with our desires. Our desires turn into I deserve. I deserve turns into I demand. I demand turns into I judge. And I judge turns into I punish. And this is just the pathway of idolatry. And so, in the midst of the conflict, ask these two questions. And this is good. This gets to the heart of, of, of uh, or helps you to see your own heart. What do I want so bad that I'm willing to sin to get it? There's something that you want so bad you're willing to, to sin against the Lord in order to get this thing. And again, that could be, that could be good. I just, I just want my wife to love me. I just want my children to be saved. But you're willing to, to sin or to compromise truth in order to receive or get yourself to believe that thing? Or what do I fear so much I'm willing to sin to prevent it? And again, just examine your own heart. What do you want so bad you're willing to sin to get it? Or what do you want to prevent so much that you're willing to sin to, to, to prevent it? Let her see the example of Christ. And this is what we want to strive for. Christ is the perfect example of selfless humility. Selfless humility. So the way we fight the progression of idolatry, the way we fight against the the pride and the selfishness that still remains that is the source of the conflicts and the quarrels is to become more like Jesus Christ, which is the purpose of the conflict itself. And this is what we're striving for. Selfless humility. Philippians 2, 3-8 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory. So do nothing from selfishness or pride. But with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others, have this way of thinking in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he says, here's how that played out in his life. Who, although existed in the form of God, so he did deserve, you know, in our self-glorification, our pride, we think we deserve something, but, but we're not God. But Christ is God. Christ did deserve Praise, honor, glory, worship in every aspect at all times. But although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. What did he do? He emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave. Almighty God, who deserves all glory and honor forever, became a slave. 
both obeying his father's will and enslaving himself to us to die for our sins. So look at the example of Christ. And by being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He laid aside his deserved majesty and glory and honor, came to earth, became one of us, enslaved himself to us. We hated him and murdered him on a cross, and he did that for our good and for the glory of both himself and his father, knowing that, that in doing that, not only was he entrusting himself to his father, doing his father's will, but it would be for our eternal salvation. And so then when we're in this place of thinking we deserve something, we have to look at the example of Jesus Christ who humbly and selflessly laid down his life for us. And that's where you start when it comes to whatever conflict it is. Go into it going, I'm not going to look out for my own interests. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love this other person more than myself. And I'm going to strive for selfless humility the way that Christ laid down his life for me. And not only is that going to change you more into the image of Christ, that's going to eliminate a lot of conflict in your life if that is your foundation for resolving conflict with other people. You're laying down all expectations. You're laying down all, all you know, you have, you have no, you have no uh, desire for this to turn out this way or that way. You're just like, I just want to glorify him. And whatever path that leads me on, that's, I'm, I'm going to do that. First Peter 2, 21 to 23, same, same principle. He says, you've been called for this purpose. Now, again, this purpose, if you look back at what he's talking about, he's talking about suffering. The, the whole context of 1 Peter is 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 those who are professing Christ in situations where they've lost everything, they've been kicked out of their homeland, there's turmoil in the workplace, there's turmoil in the culture, there's turmoil in the family, and all of it is. Now look at Christ, your example, what would he do in this situation? He says, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you and left you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth, so a perfect, holy, loving uh, God, he says, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to him, to God, who judges righteously. So next time someone wants to pick a fight with you, next time you feel offended or hurt or whatever it may be, you're the victim of whatever it is, then look at the example of Christ, who was sinless, who was holy, who was perfect, who should be glorified and honored and magnified above all people, but willingly enslaved himself uh, to us and died on a cross for our sins, entrusted himself to his father, did not revile in return, uttered no threats when suffering, and imitate his example. I love this quote by Wayne Mack. I had this in another lesson, but I brought it up again here. He says, a leader must have a servant's heart. And if a, he has a servant's heart, he will act like a servant and react like a servant when he's treated like a servant. If you understand that you're just a servant of Christ, and you look at the example of, of Christ's self-sacrifice, well, then when people treat you the way they treated Christ, and they insult you and revile you and mock you and hate you and take away everything that you felt like you deserved, then, then you'll recognize that, well, I'm, I'm just imitating the one who I'm called to follow. And, and then you'll react. If you know, again, if you, if you know you're a slave and someone treats you like a slave, well, then, <laughs> then you'll react and act like a slave. It's normal. If, if you understand that you're a slave and you're not being honored like a master or honored or glorified like the, like the master, well, then you're going to react and act like a slave. I think it's just a good thing for all of us to, to remember. So we'll end there, and uh, 
I know, Zelda, you were saying, so how do we start? Well, that's the very next thing. Principles of conflict resolution. So when we come back next week, we'll talk about the principles of conflict resolution. And, uh, oh, actually, that's not the next thing. It's almost the next thing. <laughs> uh, but we'll finish up next week. Uh, let me pray for us real quick, and you'll just-